Um, and uh, so basically, basically chapters 1 through 8, um, Paul really delights in and celebrates and explains the gospel in detail about how every single person throughout all history has sinned and turned away from God, and we all deserve God's judgment, and yet he sent his son to die for us, and it's only through Jesus, it's only through what Jesus has done and believing in Jesus, trusting in him, that we can be brought into a relationship with God, that we can experience God's love for us, and we can walk with him and know that his favor is resting upon us. That's chapters 1 through 8, and then chapters 12 to the end of the book are, um, he gets into kind of really some practical uh, details, commands. This is how you should live because of what is true, because of the gospel, because of who Jesus is. And then 9 through 11, some people are like, why does Paul even go into what he goes into in 9 through 11? He could have just gone from 8 to 12 and we would have been good, you know? But, uh, but basically, Paul has been talking in chapter 8 especially about how God works everything, all things, for the good of those he has called, for the good of those that, that he has brought near to himself, um, of those who love him. And, uh, and he said that nothing, nothing can separate them from his love. Once they're part of his family, nothing can separate them. And that's, that's incredible news for us to, to rejoice in and rest in. But because he's just been talking about that, I think Paul now thinks about um, the Israelite people who were in the Old Testament were the people of God. Those are the people that God chose to be his people. And so he might, Paul might have been you know, struggling with this question at some point himself, and he knew that other people might have been struggling with this question. Well, if, if God, you know, if nothing can separate you from God's love, and if he's working everything for the good of all those he has called, what about all of the Jewish people who now aren't embracing Jesus, or they don't seem to be actually following God or trusting in him. Um, it seems like there's only some of those people have remained in God's family. So what's the deal with that? Is, is, does that mean that God's word me, is meaningless? That you know he says that nothing's going to separate us from him, but is that really true? And so that's why he goes into what he goes into in chapter 9. So uh, listen to God's word as I read. You only have some of the verses printed in your order of worship there. So I encourage you, if you have a Bible, to pull it out and turn to Romans 9 and read along there with me. Or if you want to look it up on your phone. Um, otherwise, uh, you'll just have to kind of go with it. And uh, I think it's going to be up on the screen too, maybe. So um, this is God's word. Listen to God's word from Romans 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all that are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. 
And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us as we look at this chapter because we need your spirit to help us to understand exactly what you're saying here. We need your spirit to help us understand why we need to hear it. We need your spirit to help us understand and see you more clearly here. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, I have uh, rarely, rarely, rarely ever met a child who likes to eat vegetables. I mean, there's the rare kid who maybe likes one particular vegetable, but for the most part, 99% of kids I've encountered, they hate all of vegetables, all of them. You know, and I, in my own experience, you know, you'll, you'll just take just a couple little tiny, the tiniest little pieces of broccoli and put it on their plate. They'll make sure it doesn't touch anything else. And then they won't eat it. They'll eat everything else on the plate. And eventually, you know, I'll try to talk them into it. I'll be like, you know, let's pretend it's a train. Let's fly it. Let's, let's like drive it into the station or a plane that's flying into the hangar. Or just pretend you're a giant and these are real small trees and you can eat them. Sometimes that works. But most of the time what happens is I end up getting the fork and I'm like, okay, let's, let's, just, let's just, you know, fly it in. And, and what they do is they go like this. <laughs> you know, they're just, they're, their lips are locked. I can't get it in their mouth. They hate it. And I can understand. I can relate to them because I hated vegetables when I was a kid. I, I hated them. I mean, my arch nemesis was the lima bean. <laughs> lima beans were and are the worst. 
I refuse to eat lima beans, even today. I remember there was one family, we had, a, we had a Thanksgiving meal where the entire, like the extended family was around, you know, you had table next to a table next to a table, so there's this giant table that everybody's sitting around, and for, what, for some reason my grandma decided to serve lima beans that Thanksgiving. And so my mom made me put at least, you know, a couple lima beans on my plate, and, uh, and she was like, you know, you have to take a, take a bite, you have to take a bite. Eventually, I was like, you know, I really didn't want to, but I put the lima bean in my mouth, and then right there, I just like gagged. And I can't remember if I like spit it out on the table itself or next to my chair on the floor, but I remember it was a memorable Thanksgiving for everybody. Nobody <laughs> forgot it. Nobody forgot it. You know, vegetables, you know, there are some vegetables that are awful. But the thing is, vegetables, we know vegetables are good for us. We know that, that if we don't eat vegetables, we will be less healthy than we would be if we do eat vegetables, no matter how you feel about them. And that's why we continue to force them on our kids. I, I have the, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little reluctant this morning because I, 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 what, I, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to serve you guys some vegetables in this message, okay? Um, I think for some people, they look at Romans 9 through 11, and they're kind of like the vegetables of Bible passages. Um, there's some stuff in here that is hard to swallow, and we'd rather not have to digest, but it's good for us. It's healthy for us to hear it. Um, you know, I, I mentioned before, why, some people ask, you know, why didn't, why didn't Paul just skip from 8 to 12? You know, they, it would, the, the, the whole book would still completely make sense. But for some reason, 9 through 11 are in here because they're good for us. And it's important for us to think about what God's trying to tell us here. Um, and so there's four truths, four vegetables that I'm going to give you this morning, okay? The first one is this. You are not competent enough to make yourself spiritually healthy. You're not competent enough. And neither am I. When it comes to spiritual health, when it comes to being part of God's family, to living as part of God's family, we aren't good enough to get ourselves into God's family. We aren't competent enough. We, we can't try hard enough to be good people. That's not enough. It's not about what we can do. It's not even about you know, being part of the right group. It's not even about being, like, growing up in a certain family or being part of the right church. None of that stuff is enough to get us into the family of God. But rather, what this passage seems to say here is that it's wholly dependent on God. Wholly dependent on his promise, wholly dependent on his desire to rescue you, to save you, to take a hold of you and draw you to himself and bring you to himself. It's wholly dependent on him. And he, Paul uses two examples of this. He talks about Abraham and how God came to Abraham and he promised Abraham that he would make him into a nation. And at this point, Abraham was really, really old and his wife was old and they, they were incapable of having kids at this point. And God said, no, you're going to have kids and I'm going to make you into, into a great nation. And, and, and Abraham's like, okay, I need to get this done. I need to make this happen. And so he has a child with his wife's servant. But God says, no. That, that child is born, Ishmael, and God says, no, that child's not going to be part of my family just because he's your son. 
I am going to give you a son. I'm going to work by my power to make a child come from you and Sarah. It's about what God does. It's about his power. Not my desire, not my ability, not my effort. And then he uses the example of, uh, of you know, Abraham's son, Isaac. He grows up and then he gets married and he has uh, two sons. Or he has two sons, um, twin sons, Esau and Jacob, right? And, uh, and in those days, the normal thing was for the older son to you know, get the blessing and to kind of be the one who represents the family and, and everything. And, and, uh, and God says, no, before the kids were even born, before it, it makes a point of saying, before they had done anything, good or bad, it's not based on what they've done at all. God says, I'm going to choose the younger one. The younger one. The older one is going to serve the younger. Esau is going to serve Jacob. And then he says this startling thing in verse 13. He says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That sounds kind of harsh. Um, And I think you need to understand it this way when it's using these these words love and hate. I don't think it means that that God just really, really disliked Esau. But what he's make, the, the point he's making here is that Jacob is the one he has chosen to set his love upon. He has chosen pri- to prioritize over his brother Esau. You know, just as Jesus, when Jesus talks about love, he's like, you, you can't follow me unless you hate your father and mother and brothers and sisters, right? Jesus wasn't telling us to despise our family members, our, our blood family members. He, he was just saying, they need to be a less of a priority than me. You need to choose me over them and everything. And so this is what he's telling us. He's, he says, um, God, God's people are those he has decided to set his love upon, those he has chosen to work in, those he has chosen to make part of his family. That seems to be what he's saying here. And so he says it specifically. He says, not all, not all descended from Israel belong to Israel. Remember, he's talking about this, this question. What about all the Israelites that don't seem to be embracing Jesus? Well, the reality is, is that there's just a small subset of Israel that God has actually grabbed a hold of and is working in and has poured out his love upon to be part of his family. And so this is the thing. To be part of God's family, we must rely solely on God. We must respond solely on his promise, on his work to love us and to save us and to work in us. Again, it doesn't have to do with how good of a person you are. It only has to do with his work, his decision. He must save you. That's the bottom line. He must save you. You cannot save yourself. He even seems to say, God must choose you. It's dependent on his spirit to work in you. And this, as I said, it's, it's a vegetable. It's hard to hear that. It's hard to accept. But I think one of the things that this does for us is it, is it moves us towards a, a greater sense of humility. Like as I stand before God and, I, and I, I've come to believe in Jesus, I, I, he gets all of the credit. I get none of it. It gives me a greater sense of uh, humility. It also gives me a greater sense of dependence on him. It's not about me and what I can do. It's only about him and what he has done for me. We are not competent enough. But if this is what he's saying, that God must choose to save us and choose to forgive us, then some of us might accuse God of being unfair. Why is it that God just chooses to 
bring some people into his family and not everybody? Why doesn't God choose to pour out his mercy on everyone? Why does God choose not to bring everybody into his family? That's kind of the natural question for a lot of us, I think. It seems kind of unfair. And I've heard a lot of people ask that question. If this is really what it's teaching, then that question is the natural one to come up. And, I, and, and Paul actually deals with that specific question in verses 14 to 18, which leads me to believe that that's what he's trying to say in the verses before this. That's why he brings the question up. He says, what should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And this is the thing. We, we have this tendency to, to look at the world and, and, and we say, okay, God has, has chosen to, to bring some people into his family and not others. That does not seem fair. He should make everybody part of his family. But I think that reveals, what that reveals about us is that we don't really understand what's at stake here in God making us part of his family. We don't really understand what is at the heart of what God is really doing and it has everything to do with him showing us mercy. Right? He sa- that's what he says in verse 15. He says, uh, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Um, this is kind of the second vegetable that we need to come to terms with. Um, for us to be part of God's family means that he has shown us mercy. Okay? And by definition of what mercy is, none of us has a right to mercy. None of us has a right to mercy. We don't have a right to say, God, you have to forgive me. You have to show me mercy. The reality is that every single one of us, as Paul talked about in the first few chapters of, of, of Romans, he said, every single person on the face of the earth has turned away from God. And it's not just that we're, you know, a lot of us tend to think sin is just, you know, we, we slip up from time to time. Um, it's, we, we can admit to just not being perfect. But sin is much more insidious than that. It's much more offensive to God than that. It goes to the heart of who we are. As, we, as, we turn, as we've all turned away from God, it's, it's not just messing up from time to time. It, 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 it also encompasses all of the ways that we fail to do the things that we're supposed to do. That's an endless list of things. You realize that. We don't realize how sinful we are. We don't realize how offensive we are to God, how much we've hurt him and offended him and angered him. How much we deserve his justice. That's the bottom line. Every single person, we've, we all deserve to be separated from God, to be cut off from his presence. That is what we deserve. But what God has done is he's chosen to show mercy to some. And then we turn around and say, well, why don't you show mercy to everybody? That doesn't seem fair. I mean, the, the, maybe the, the equivalent, somewhat of an equivalent illustration is this. You know, let's say a group of five people get together and they rob a bank. And in the process of robbing, robbing a bank, they take hostages and they're brutal to these hostages and they torture them and then they kill them. And then the, uh, the evidence is all there. It's clear. They're captured and they're taken to court and they're all convicted. It's, it's certain. It's, they're all convicted. And, and, you know, it's, it's a big public uh, trial, and everybody's like, these people need to go away forever. So they're convicted, and they're sent away to prison. But then, for some reason, the governor or the president decides, I'm going to pardon the leader of this group. I'm going to let them go free. Just the leader, not the other guys. The public outcry 
would very likely not be, why aren't you letting them all go? It would be more like, why are you letting this guy free? He's guilty. Right? That's what we would be astounded by. That's what doesn't seem fair, that you're letting this guy go free, that you're showing this one person mercy. And I think that's where we need to kind of lean more towards. Instead of being, being like, why doesn't he let everybody, you know, why doesn't he give mercy to everybody? I should be more astounded at the fact that he's shown mercy to me. Why has let, he, he let me off the hook? Why has he shown mercy to me? Why has he given grace to me? Why has he enabled me to understand the gravity of what Jesus has done? That's what I need to be preoccupied with that God's mercy is so immense and so big. And, and, and as, I, as I become more preoccupied with God's mercy towards me, it makes me more grateful for all that he's really done. And so we're not competent enough. We're, we have no right to mercy. But now if God has the right to show mercy to whom he, he chooses, and if we only come to, him, come to know him by, by his choosing us and loving us, then we might be tempted to think, okay, well, if, if it's all up to God, if he's the one who saves us, then, you know, I mean, I, what responsibility do I have? Like, I, who resists God's will? I mean, then, then are we, we're just, we must just all be robots walking around here. And so I, I'm, I might be tempted to kind of judge God for just making us all robots. Um, and this is where Paul then goes in uh, verses 19. He says, you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But then in verse 20, he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And this is the bottom line. I am not the potter. I am not the one who has created everything. I, I'm, I'm the creature. I am the clay. I have no right to question God about anything. I, his wisdom is way beyond mine. He knows way better how to rule over and orchestrate all things than I could ever possibly understand. And so there comes a point when I just need to surrender to the fact that he is God and I am not he is God and I am not. I am the clay. There's a fundamental difference between him and me. And the temptation throughout all of history has been for us, the creatures, to, be, to want to step up and be in the place of our creator, you know? To want to, to want to feel like we know just as much as God does. To want to feel like we can, we can orchestrate our lives just as well as God can. That's all of us, you know, at the heart of ourselves, you know? But the reality is, is that there's only one who has created all things. There is only one who has existed before creation. There is only one whose wisdom we cannot even comprehend. And so my job is to stop talking back and to surrender and to trust him. And again, this, this sounds harsh to me. You know, I'm not the potter, I'm the clay. I need to just be quiet and trust him. It does. It honestly sounds pretty harsh to me. But if, if it wasn't for, there's the pages and pages and pages in here that remind me of, how the, of the fact that the potter, that God, is good. And that he's loving. And that he's compassionate. And that his wisdom is perfect. 
if there wasn't for just mounds and mounds and mounds of evidence for that, it would be a lot harder for me to just be quiet. But it is true. He is good. He is the good shepherd. He is the one who's pursuing you with loving kindness and faithfulness. And so that enables me a little bit, it makes it a little easier to, to swallow this vegetable <laughs> and to say, yeah, God, you are God. I need to trust you no matter what. No matter how hard of a time it is to under, how hard it is for me to really understand this. All right, one last veggie that might be hard for us to process is, is this. Um, it's not about our glory, but rather it's about God's glory. It's not about my glory, but it's about God's glory. I think most of us understand that it's wrong for me to live for my glory. It's wrong for me to, to boast about myself. It's wrong for me to go around telling everybody how great I am. You know, we, we tend to, you know, if somebody does that, if we're hanging out with somebody and they, all they do is talk about themselves and, and all their accomplishments and, and everything that's great about themselves, doesn't that kind of rub you the wrong way? Does that ever bother you? It bothers me. I mean, probably the main reason it bothers me is because they're, they're kind of taking attention away from me, you know? I want people to notice that I'm great. So I think we would all agree that it's wrong to boast about ourselves. It's wrong to try to point everybody else to, to, to my accomplishments and how great I am. But it's interesting. Again, there's a fundamental difference between us and God. And what is wrong for us is actually right for God. Look at, look at God's uh, purpose in all of this and in, in what he does in, order, in, in rescuing some and not others. It says in verse um, 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. God's goal in what he does in us, in his people, and in all of creation is to show off his glory, to display how great he is, to display the riches of his grace. That's God's goal in everything that he does. As you read the Bible, that actually becomes apparent in all sorts of places in the Bible. I mean, just a couple, just a couple examples, like in Isaiah 42, it talks about how God created his people for his glory. That is why he, he chose Abraham and called his people to himself. There's several places in the Old Testament where God says, I am not going to share my glory with anybody else. In Ephesians 1, it talks about all of the blessing that God, blessings that God gives those that are his, those that have believed in Jesus, that, that how he has forgiven them and how he has adopted them and made them part of his family, and, you, and he's given them his spirit. And you know the reason he says he does all these things? For the praise of his glorious grace so that everybody would see how glorious he is, so that everybody would see how great he is, so that everybody would see that he is ultimate in power, in wisdom, in love, in goodness. That is God's ultimate goal. He has reasons for doing all sorts of things, but the ultimate reason above all of the other reasons is, is that he wants everyone to see how great he is. And so then for us, you know, we, we know it's wrong for us to point to our own greatness. So it, shouldn't that be wrong for God too? But the reality is it's not wrong for God. It's right for God because it's true. Because there is no one greater than him. 
He has to point to himself as the greatest. And, and on top of that, the reason we were made, one of the reasons we were made is to be satisfied with his glory, with how great God is. Seeing God's wisdom and power and grace and mercy and understanding that, beholding that, that will satisfy us unlike anything else. That will give us greater joy to behold the greatness and glory of God. So it's, it's not only right for God to do it, but it's good for God to, to point us to his glory. Because that's what we were made to behold. That's what, we, that's what we were made to run on, to feast on, to satisfy ourselves with. And so God is the one that we need to behold as far as his glory goes. We need to, it's not about our glory, it's not about me, it's about him. And so these are hard things. For some of us, they're harder for some, some than for others to take in and to swallow and to digest. Um, it's hard to take in the fact that, it's, that, it's, that, that I am powerless, ultimately, to rescue myself, to save myself. I am powerless to earn God's favor and his love, and I have to depend on him. It's hard for me to swallow the fact that I have no right to mercy, that what I really deserve, just like he, he kind of talks about Pharaoh here, how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. By the way, he says God hardened Pharaoh's heart here. It's, he, actually, what he did in Pharaoh's life, if you look at Exodus, it talks about how um, when, when Moses first goes to Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go, uh, what it talks about is, at first it says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then that kind of alternates then throughout the rest of Exodus with, it says God hardened his heart, but then Pharaoh hardened his own heart, kind of back and forth, back and forth. And I think that just is illustrating what Paul was talking about in the beginning of Romans 1. Remember Romans 1, for those of you guys who are here, we were talking about how, how God said, how, how in Romans 1, it talks about how all of us have turned away from God. We've exchanged the creator for creation. And we've worshiped and served things that are created rather than him. And what did God do? He turned us over to our desires to turn away from him. So in a sense, we've all turned away from God. We've hardened our own hearts. And then God has let us go our own way. And in a sense, has hardened our hearts by letting us have what we want. I think that's what he did in Pharaoh's life. But it's hard for us to actually say, yeah, I, I actually deserve the worst from God for how I live every day. And yet what he's done is he's poured out his mercy on me. A mercy that, that's bigger than I can even imagine. It's hard for me to acknowledge that I am not the potter as I look at all my life, that, that I am not in charge, that it's not up to me. And it's hard for me to, to it's, it's it, this truth that, that God, his goal is his glory. That's hard to, to understand and, and believe and, and, and agree with even for some of us. But as I said before, these are kind of like vegetables and we need to take them in and we need to digest them. They will make us stronger. Uh, it, it makes me think, obviously, some of you guys may be thinking, who, who, who got strong? Who, got, who was transformed supernaturally from eating vegetables? Popeye, of course, right? Popeye ate his spinach and he was transformed. He was, made, he was given a supernatural strength whenever he you know, popped open that can and ate his spinach. When you, when you look at Paul in this passage, he seems to be a man who has been transformed and has supernatural power 
in a sense. If you look at the first few verses of this, of this chapter, Paul is, he astounds me because he has this supernatural compassion for his fellow Israelites who have not come to believe in Jesus. He, he, his heart breaks for them, right? He says he, he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. He has this supernatural compassion and grief about those who don't know Jesus. And that drives him to a supernatural desire even to sacrifice himself for them. It, it's crazy. He says in, in verse 3, right? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Jesus is the reason for Paul's life. Paul's entire purpose and joy comes from Jesus. His meaning for life, and yet he's willing to be separated. He's willing to give that up out of love for others. That's supernatural sacrifice. And in that, he reminds me a lot of Jesus. He reminds me a lot of Jesus, who, who gave up him, himself. He sacrificed himself, the thing that, that, that sustained him. An assurance of his father's love when he went to the cross and died on the cross. Jesus gave up what he relied on, communion with his father, in order to, to give us God's mercy. 